want to welcome you here today. If you're in our overflow room, we'd like to welcome you, or if you are watching us online, and I realize that we have a number of visitors who are here today. Whenever I walk into worship and I see adults seated close to the front, uh, I know that preschoolers or children are singing, um, that you're not doing that for the sermon. So we want to welcome you. And if you're visiting today, uh, we want to catch you up. Uh, We are in week two of our series called The Journey to Jesus. And in this series, we are looking at the Christmas narrative as told by Matthew. And last week I talked about the fact that in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew gives us the events leading up to the birth of Jesus. And then in Matthew 2, Matthew describes the events immediately after the birth of Jesus. And last week, Matthew introduced us to a group of men that we commonly call the wise men. Matthew actually referred to them as magi. And magi is the same word from which we get our word magic, meaning these guys were not Orthodox Jewish priests. Uh, They were into superstitions. They were into astrology. They were into spells. They were into all the mystical things, into fortune telling, all these different mystical things. And yet these individuals saw a star in the sky that led them to come to Jerusalem. And as I mentioned last week, we call them wise men for good reason. Uh, These would have been very learned individuals. Um, In a day and age when most people are illiterate, these guys were very well read. Um, They read read broadly and deeply, so everything that was available to them, um, they would have read. They would have had access to all of the scrolls describing the different philosophies in the ancient Near East, different ideas, different religious ideas that were out there. They had all of this information, and yet at some point, they looked at all that they had read and all they had studied, and they said, this isn't it. This just isn't doing it. There's got to be something else. There's got to be a better way. And so in search of this better way, these guys left their homeland, made a very long, very difficult journey all the way to Jerusalem in search of the one who was born king of the Jews. And here's the passage we looked at last week. Matthew 2, starting in verse 3. Here's what we read. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So just in these three verses, the question is raised. How did these men see a star And know that it signified the birth of the king of the Jews. Why would they leave their homeland and make this very difficult journey across a thousand miles, sleeping under the stars at night on the hard rocky ground, riding on stubborn smelly camels, knowing that they could get robbed along the way, leaving their home behind, leaving their family behind? Why would they make this very difficult journey just because there was a bright star to the west of them? And then once they arrived in Jerusalem, how did they know that this star signified that the king of the Jews had been born? And then why would that bring them to Jerusalem? 
kings were born all the time in the ancient world. Kings were born all over. How did this star in the sky signify that the king of the Jews had been born? And then why did these guys care? Why would they come all this way and ask Herod, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Matthew doesn't tell us. Matthew's the only one that records the story of the wise men. No one else records it. We really have no way of knowing for sure why these guys came. However, I think there's a very clear explanation. In fact, I think the explanation is so logical and so clear that that's why Matthew did not include it in his story. Matthew wrote his gospel for a Jewish audience, and that Jewish audience instinctively would have known why these wise men came. When you back up 500 years before the birth of Christ, the nation of Israel at that point was ruled by a kingdom called the Babylonians. Babylon came into Israel, they invaded Israel, they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and then they carried back to Babylon, this nation in the east, east of Jerusalem, they carried back to Babylon these leading citizens of Israel. One of those individuals was a guy named Daniel. Daniel at this point was just a teenager. If you grew up in church, you've heard of Daniel. You know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel would not bow to any other God but the Lord God. And so he was thrown into a den of lions and God shut the mouth of the lions and protected Daniel and proved that God really is the one true God. When you back up before that story, before that very familiar Sunday school story, you find that Daniel was in a kingdom who was ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of the Babylonians. And in Daniel chapter 2, we read about Nebuchadnezzar having this very disturbing dream. And so he called together all of his wise men. These men who were into superstitions and spells and fortune telling. And he calls them all together and says, I've had this really disturbing dream. I need to know what this dream means. And the guys say, okay, tell us the dream and we'll interpret it for you. He says, no, 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 no. You guys are supposed to have all of this understanding. You're supposed to be able to do fortune telling. You tell me the dream that I had and then you give me the interpretation and I'll know that your interpretation's right because you're able to tell me the dream that I had. They said, no one can do that. We can't tell you what you dreamt. Tell us what you dreamt and we'll tell you the interpretation. He said, no, no, no. In fact, if you don't tell me what it was I dreamt, I'm going to have you all put to death. Man, they were scared. Daniel, who was the slave from Israel, gets word about what's going on. And he says, tell Nebuchadnezzar that God has revealed it to me, what he dreamt, and I will come and give an interpretation. And so Daniel comes, he tells the king, this is what you dreamt, this is what it means, here's the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed that here is what he did, Daniel chapter 2. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of its wise men. Daniel, this teenager, a foreigner from Israel, was suddenly given this high-ranking position as chief of the wise men over this eastern kingdom. 
Now, eventually the Babylonians were invaded by the Medes and Persians, and they took over for a while. And then later on in history, the Greeks under Alexander the Great took over that area for a while. And then by the time Jesus came along, the Romans from the West had taken over Israel, and the Parthians from the East had taken over this Eastern kingdom where Daniel had been, where Babylon had once ruled. Now, here's why I tell you all of that history, and I can see your eyes are starting to glaze over, giving you that history lesson. Here is why that is so important. When Matthew said, Magi came from the east, the original readers would have understood, oh, they came from the area ruled by the Parthians. They came from the area that had been ruled by the Babylonians and the Medes and then the Persians and then the Greeks for a while. That's east. That's the kingdom that they would have come from. Now, here's why this is so important. All of these different kingdoms were ruled by different governments. They had different kings. They all had monarchs who had absolute power. But these kings would surround themselves with a council of wise men. These wise men were in charge of advising the king. And it wasn't like a president's cabinet where you get all these different experts in different fields of, of government. They had wise men who were magi. They were into superstition and spells and fortune telling and looking at the stars and understanding the stars and reading the tea leaves and whatever else could help someone predict the future. These kings would get these wise men together and they would say, hey, should I invade that kingdom? Should I go to war with that king? Should I marry the daughter of that king there to form an alliance? Should I make a treaty with this country over here? And these magi would go and they would consult the stars or the tea leaves or the, whatever kind of spell they would do. And they would come back and they would say, oh king, here's what the gods have said that you're supposed to do. Here's, here's the best decision. And he would rely on their wisdom and their ability for, to foretell the future in order to make decisions. Now here's why this is so important. Daniel had done this for Nebuchadnezzar. Kingdoms would take over, but kings would leave in place wise men who were known to be good at their jobs. And although these kings and kingdoms would change, there would essentially be a group of magi who would remain in place. Now, here's why this is so important. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel has this vision that he recorded on what would have been a scroll then, which you and I now call the Old Testament book of Daniel. Here's what Daniel wrote. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, that is Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city is built on a hill, the temple on the hill of Jerusalem, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, that's the angel Gabriel who shows up in the Christmas story, Gabriel, the man I had seen in an earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Here's the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, 
to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Daniel has this vision where the angel Gabriel come and tells him that there will come a time that will put an end to sin, an atonement for wickedness, an everlasting righteousness. And when will this happen? In 77, in 77 uh, year time periods. In other words, 490 years. Daniel writes these words roughly 500 years before Jesus was born. These wise men that came from the east, they would have had the scroll of Daniel or a copy of the scroll of Daniel. And for years they would have studied and they would have read and they would have known about this particular prediction. And when they saw that it was coming time, that they were getting close to that 500 year mark and then they saw this star way off in the distance, they knew. This was not just the birth of any king, but this was one who would come born king of the Jews to finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision, and to anoint the most holy place. This was not your average run-of-the-mill king, but this was a king who was so important that it was worth leaving their homeland, making a thousand mile journey to go all the way to Jerusalem and ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? The star may have got them started on their journey. The star may have led them to the city of Jerusalem, but it was what you and I call the scriptures that led them to the place where they were able to come and ask about the birth of the king of the Jews, which is exactly what they do in Matthew chapter 2, we read, read on in verse 4. Here's what happened. When he, talking about Herod, had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, <clears throat> he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Bethlehem in Judea, they, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And they quote from the Old Testament prophet Micah here. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Notice what these religious leaders say. Or notice what they do not say. They do not say, well, I don't know. Where's the star shining the brightest? Well, go and look. Get your compass or whatever tools you use and just figure out where the star is in relation to the earth and where it's shining down. And that'll lead you to the king of the Jews. They don't say that. They say, we know where the one who is born to be born king of the Jews is supposed to be from. We learned it the first day in Bible school. It comes from Micah. It comes from the prophet. He is to be born in Bethlehem. The star got them to Jerusalem, but without the scriptures, they would have spent all of their time wandering around Jerusalem asking, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? It was the Old Testament scroll of Daniel that got them started in the right direction. It was the Old Testament book of Micah that led them to Bethlehem to ultimately find Jesus. Here is why this is so important. Last week we talked about all of us coming to this point in life where we reach this crisis moment and we look around and we say there's got to be a better way. It may be that a marriage falls apart or you lose a job or you have some kind of health crisis and you look around and you go, there's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be a better way. 
Or maybe it's not a crisis. Maybe it's simply looking around and going, you know, I've gotten everything in life that I wanted and I'm still not happy. It may be that you look around and you go, you know, life has to be more than just going to school, getting a job, getting married, having 2.4 kids, working for 40 years, and then retiring in Florida. There's got to be more to life than just that. And whether it's a crisis moment or whether it's this sort of existential look at life, virtually everyone has this moment where they go, there's got to be a better way. That crisis, that moment is like the star. It will get you going in the right direction. It will get you asking the right questions, but it cannot lead you to salvation. Salvation only comes through the revelation of God that we find in the scriptures. Feelings cannot bring you salvation. A star, a crisis, whatever else cannot bring you salvation. It is only by reading the scriptures that we are able to find the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is through the revealed word of God. If you've got your message map with you, this is what the scriptures teach us about salvation. The path to salvation is this. Number one, it is a recognition of sin. The path begins by recognizing or acknowledging that we all have to be saved from something. And the Bible calls that something our sin. And all of us have sinned. Here's what the Bible says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes says it this way. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. The first step in becoming a follower of Christ and finding salvation is to recognize that we all fall short, that none of us are good enough on our own to achieve salvation. You've likely heard the term the gospel. The gospel literally means good news. The literal translation of the word is good news. It is only good news when we understand just how bad the bad news is. And the bad news is we are born separated from God and there's nothing that you and I can do to overcome that gap, to bridge that gap between us and God through our own good works. That's how bad the bad news is. If Jesus just came to show us how to live, if Jesus just came to show us how to be a, how to be a little more moral, uh, if we just need some tweaking, if we just need to get from, you know, a B plus to an A, then that's not really good news. In fact, that may be okay news at best. Uh, in fact, if, I, if it depends on me and I've got to be a little more moral to make it to heaven, if I've got to be a little bit better person to make it to heaven, then I don't think that's even okay news. I think it's bad news because I'm going to blow it. The gap is so wide that there's nothing that you and I can do to overcome it. Now, you may object. A lot of people in our culture do. They say something like, wait a second, I'm a good person. You know, and especially when I look around at my friends, I'm a really good person. You know? I look around at culture, I'm a good person. I don't steal most of the time. I've never murdered anyone. You know, I'm fairly honest on my taxes. You know, I, I, I'm a good person. I get that. I understand that feeling that, hey, he's a good person. She's a good person. I'm a good person. Isn't that enough? 
Except the Bible tells us that the gulf between us and God is so wide that even in all of your goodness, it's not enough. Imagine it this way. Let's say that there was some catastrophic event that was coming upon the United States. Something that was going to destroy the continental United States. And our only hope was to drive to Savannah, jump into the Atlantic Ocean, and swim to Europe. That's the only way to be saved, is to do that. Now, if I'm doing that, I'm going to make it about 100 yards and that's it. I mean, I swim one lap on the pool. I have to stop, catch my breath. I am an awful swimmer. You might be a tremendous swimmer. You may even be like close to the level of Michael Phelps kind of swimmer. I mean, you swim all the time. You're very good. You're, 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 you're in great shape. You can swim really far. Guess what? Neither one of us are making it. You might make it a couple of miles out to sea, but both of us are going to die. The gap is that wide. We cannot do anything to overcome the sin on our own. You may be a good person. I may be a good person, but none of us are good enough to bridge the gap between us and God. So the Bible says the first thing is to recognize our sin. The second thing is a repentance of sin. So it's not enough just to say, yeah, I've I've blown it. You know, I've sinned a lot. I know a lot of people who say, yeah, I've sinned a, a, a whole lot. It's not just recognizing sin. It's coming to the point that you repent of that sin. In Acts chapter 2, we read the story of the birthday of the church. It's a day that we call Pentecost, 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus. The followers of Christ are in Jerusalem. There are Jews from all over Israel who are gathered there. And Peter stands up at that gathering and he makes this um, incredible appeal to all of those around. And he says, God sent his son Jesus on this planet who lived a perfect life and then died in our place. You crucified him, but it was all according to God's plan to die for our sins. And he makes that appeal and notice how the people respond. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Notice what Peter did not say. Well, if you just generally believe in God, that's enough. If you believe in God and you're pretty much a good person, then that's enough. If you believe in God and you go to church a couple times a year, that's enough. If you believe in God and you go to church a couple times a year and you buy a big family Bible and you leave it on the shelf and that's all, all you really need to do. If you believe in God and you buy a family Bible and you go to church and you say God is great before every meal, then that'll do it. That's all it takes. Peter didn't say any of those things. He said, repent. Repent of your sin and be baptized. Here, Peter makes a clear call to repentance, meaning a general belief in a general God who generally saves all those who are generally good is not enough. There's a clear call to repentance. Number one, recognizing sin. Number two, repenting of sin. And the number three is receiving forgiveness. Here's what, first, what John wrote in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will for forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
So here's the promise. The person who recognizes their sin and that there's nothing that they can do to overcome their sin, to be good enough to reach God. Then they repent of that sin and they confess that sin to the Lord. Then here's the promise. You will receive forgiveness. And John makes it clear. And you'll be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Not just some, not just part of the unrighteousness, but forgiven of all unrighteousness. Now, I realize this, this is a sticking point for a lot of people. In fact, there have been so many times that I've heard someone say, you know, I would follow Christ. I would come to church. I would get serious about my relationship with God. However, there have been so many things that I have done that there's just no way God can forgive me. There's just no way that God can forgive me for all the bad things that I've done. Whenever someone says that to me, I just point them to the Bible and the list of characters in the Bible forgiven by God. Take Peter. Peter followed Christ for three years. Jesus considered Peter to be one of his best friends. Peter was as close to Jesus as anybody else. And yet, when Jesus was arrested and placed on trial, Peter denied even knowing him. As Jesus was at the lowest point of his life, needing his friend more than ever, Peter denied even knowing who Jesus was, not once, but three times, to the point even that he cussed out a young girl just for saying, hey, Weren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of those who followed Jesus? And with an expletive, he said, no, absolutely not. Betrayed his friend Jesus. And yet Peter was fully forgiven and used by God to do incredible things. Look at Paul. Paul, this missionary, author of 13 letters in our New Testament, Uh, Paul was responsible, humanly speaking, for the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And yet before all of that, Paul murdered Christians. Used the force of government to go around and arrest and place in jail and at times put to death those who followed Christ. Yet he was fully forgiven and used by God. Look at the woman at the well. Had numerous husbands, When Jesus meets her, she was shacking up with some dude, yet fully forgiven. And then goes and tells an entire town about what Jesus had done for her. You can go through the list of prostitutes and thieves and drunkards and a whole list of scoundrels and rascals who all receive forgiveness for their sin. There is only one sin that disqualifies you from the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is the sin of unbelief. That is all that can keep you from salvation. No other sin can. So number one is to recognize your sin. Number two is to repent of that sin. Number three is to receive forgiveness that is found in Christ. And then finally, number four is a recognizable confession. In other words, a public confession. You cannot become a follower of Christ and keep that as a little secret just between the two of you. When you become a follower of Christ, when you've received that grace and the forgiveness of sin, it so impacts your life that you cannot help but tell others about it. Jesus phrased it this way. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven 
But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Jesus did not mean by this that we have to work our way into heaven by by our words, by, by telling others. What he meant was anyone who receives the gospel in their life and their heart is changed will naturally tell others about it. Paul said something similar when he said, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The star will get you started in the right direction. The crisis will get you asking the right questions. But it is only through the scriptures that you find salvation. If you have never embraced the gospel, if you have never received Christ as your Savior, then I want to stop right now and I want to pray that this will be the Christmas that is completely different for you. Let's pray together. Father, we we ask for your forgiveness uh, for those times that we have focused on the wrong things at Christmas. We have become enamored with the the lights that twinkle and the the trees that sparkle with decorations and the presents that are under the tree and the food and the festivities. And in the process, somehow we have missed you. Father, thank you that, that at Christmas we celebrate the greatest gift that was ever given. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here under the sound of my voice who has never made that commitment, that today would be the day that their life is forever changed, that they would commit their life to you and they would find forgiveness for every sin they've ever committed and the promise of eternal life with you. Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.